Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Dr. Amerling, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. Richard Amerling. I'm a physician, graduated medical school in 1981, so I've been out there a long time. I had an academic career as a nephrologist in New York City and then moved down to Grenada in 2016 to teach medicine to first and second year medical students at St. George's University. And then I worked there until the pandemic started in 2020. Then they kind of closed the school and went online. I went back up to the States and worked at Bellevue from April through August 2020, helping out with their acute COVID burden as a nephrologist. Uh, I then went back to Grenada, got got uh, dismissed there ultimately for refusing to take the jab. They, they instituted a vaccine mandate and I didn't take it. So they cashiered me out of there. I worked with America's frontline doctors for a while and then started the wellness company with some colleagues and a, a group of Canadian entrepreneurs. So I've had a long career in medicine and I've seen the degradation of the medical profession firsthand. And that, that has kind of been my beat, if you will, in what I've been writing about and lecturing about and talking about. Is, was the COVID pandemic like an eye-opener for you? Did it change your perspective on the health industry? I think it did for a lot of people. I mean, I work in the fitness industry, so I already kind of knew about like the whole diet trends and everyone's kind of mixed communications on health in general. But the COVID pandemic, I think a lot of people saw, you know, I was in fear of constitutional rights, you know, locking someone inside their home and then forcing them to get something or they lose their job was a big problem for me. But that's not how it was pitched in the beginning. It was a little bit different and seemed like you were doing a good thing by getting your jab. And now we're at this state where a lot of people have either regret or they just don't talk about it. Well, it was eye opening in, in some respects, but I was not taken by surprise completely, because I had seen how things were heading in medicine for many years. And I believe that what happened in medicine over the last 20 plus years set the stage for the complete abdication by the medical profession in the face of COVID, and then their lack of objection to what, what was a tyranny that was being imposed on the grounds of medical care and public health. Uh, and this happened because the medical profession lost its way going back many years. They became dependent financially on big corporations. They largely abandoned private practice. There are not as many doctors in private practice now, by far, as there were when I started my training. In 1980, about 90% of doctors went into private practice after finishing their training. Now, probably less than 10 or 20% go into private practice. And that's been a shocking transformation. And it, it has led to doctors losing control of their incomes and their profession. And so they were unable to object when rigid protocols were introduced for care of COVID patients, for example. And that whole concept of having a protocol or a guideline to deliver care emerged about 20 years ago. And doctors, unfortunately, readily embraced it. I was one of the few back in the early 2000s to write and lecture about the dangers of this whole guideline approach to medical care that was imposed by pharma. Pharma very cleverly co-opted doctors to write guidelines uh, that became authoritative within their field 
they paid for them. They, they picked the doctors who would get on these panels. The vast majority of whom had conflicts of interest with industry. And they would write guidelines that were marketing for, for industry, marketing for their products. So this whole approach was based largely on this concept known as evidence-based medicine. That was a concept that was introduced by a couple of Canadian doctors, Gordon Guyatt and David Sackett. And it purported to systematize the way scientific evidence is used to make clinical decisions. That was always a loose process. And it suggested that before them, there was no science in medicine, which is of course absurd. We always use science, but we used it in an individualized way. But the approach that they were offering uh, elevated certain types of evidence above others, such as, for example, the randomized controlled trial. That was their the, 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 the holy grail of evidence-based medicine. And they, they denigrated the actual clinical experience of physicians working with patients. That's turned medicine upside down. The clinical experience of physicians is key to good medical care because everybody is different. The more, the more experience you have treating certain disease states, you become an expert in that disease. And we've known this forever. So when I would have a complicated case with a, with a rare disease, I would get in touch with the doctor who had published in that field and who had a lot of experience with those patients. And they invariably would come up with better advice and better recommendations. But to have this evidence-based medicine be utilized by pharma to create guidelines led to a one-size-fits-all approach to care, which is the essence of public health but it is the antithesis of good medical care. So the, the predominance of this evidence-based approach still holds today, and it allowed authoritative bodies such as the CDC and the WHO, the NICE in England, to uh, establish guidance or guidelines for the approach to COVID that were nonsensical, that you would tell patients, for example, to stay at home. And, and not you know, come in for care unless they couldn't breathe. That was wholesale abandonment of patients. That was unethical. Did anybody else speak out or question the evidence-based approach that they kept tossing out? Because in, in my immediate thoughts are like, okay, what evidence are you talking about? Is it the ones that the pharma companies pay to have studies done and have definitely have a conflict of interest, but nobody, they, they claim it's not a conflict of interest. Like to me, that's a big ethical concern. But if you raise that, people would call you a conspiracy theorist. And I don't think that's really conspiracy thinking at all. I think we've known about the stigma of big pharma in our health institutions, but for some reason, when it came to anything pandemic related, everyone dropped it. It has been plain as day in your face that they control largely the, uh, the medical literature, you know, the, the, the data set that evidence-based medicine refers to when it comes up with a guideline approach to care is corrupted by pharma-sponsored trials that show the benefits of their products, never show the harms, never show the lack of effect. You know, the, these negative studies never see the light of day. So you're looking at a whole corrupt database and trying to make decisions rationally, and it's impossible. So, and you add to that the fact that these guideline panels are 
uh, overstuffed with uh, physicians who are in the employ, more or less, of pharma, either by taking speaking fees or consulting fees or research money. And they're never going to recommend that you not use their products. Uh, it, it's a foregone conclusion that the conflicts of interest dominate. And just disclosing them doesn't make them go away. So this has been a real issue with medical care. And it's one of the reasons why medical care in the United States is so bad right now. You go to a doctor, they do some blood tests on you. They barely do a history and physical exam. They'll do a few blood tests. They'll spot, let's say, an elevated cholesterol. They say, ah, aha, yes, you need a statin. Well, the statins were uh, promoted using crappy pharma-sponsored trials, and using the concept of relative risk reduction, which is a percentage, right, as opposed to an absolute risk reduction. And you can make a tiny benefit, if, if it even exists, look huge by using relative risk reduction. So for example, a 1% reduction in cardiovascular incidence from 97% to say 90, uh, uh, sorry, from uh, 3% to 2%, that's a, an absolute risk reduction of 1%, but it's a 33% relative risk reduction, which sounds very impressive. But it's the, a 1% risk reduction is clinically meaningless. So to prescribe a drug with that kind of efficacy is, I think, malpractice, because you're not getting any real benefit and you're just getting risk. And the statin drugs are full of very negative side effects, brain fog, dementia, muscle inflammation and destruction, uh, cancer in incidents, and it goes up. It's, these are horrible cellular poisons that should never be given. Yet they are the most widely prescribed drug in, in America almost. I mean, just unbelievable. Everybody gets put on them for these numbers. And the numbers do not predict mortality. And the whole cardiovascular diet heart, heart hypothesis is nonsense. The fact that saturated fat causes heart disease has never been demonstrated. And yet that's what we're told, reduce saturated fat, eat fake fats like canola oil and safflower oil and sunflower oil, and that's supposed to make you healthy. The opposite is true. These fake oils, make you sick. It's been widely shown, but that is what is being pushed at the highest levels, including the American Heart Association. I have to ask, if you were going to talk about a track to success, I mean, where would you put some of the blame at? Do you think it's the doctors that are pushing medications and things of this sort or pushing, I don't know, people onto these drugs? Or would you consider that it's our relationship with pharmaceutical companies? Like we, We're one of two countries that advertise pharmaceutical drugs on the television. And I can guarantee you it's like 75% of commercials that are on TV. I saw three in a row and then an M&M commercial. And I was like, that's ridiculous. I don't ever remember it being like that, but that's a dangerous relationship. It's, I know people watch TV, but if they're soaking in whatever from the commercials, but it doesn't help that you have a pharmaceutical rep that's in your doctor's office saying, hey, I got this new drug, why don't you try? And they give you like a t-shirt, a hat and a, co a, co a coaster or something like that. Like that's not... I don't know. To me, that just doesn't seem ethical. But I mean, where would you consider the problem, the relationship there or how close they are with our doctors and things? Or would you consider part of the doctor's fault for pushing things that they know might not be so evidence based? 
It's a complicated question. Regarding the advertising, uh, I saw that firsthand. You know, I, I was alive and practicing during the time that that came into existence. And honestly, I did not see an effect on patients. Patients didn't come into my office ever asking for a drug that they saw advertised on television. And I would always tell them, by the way, that any drug that you see advertised on television is probably a horrible drug, because if it was really good, you wouldn't need advertising. Doctors would jump all over it and prescribe it widely. So they only would advertise the crappy drugs that have minimal evidence and, and had a lot of toxicity. And of course, they had to give you the whole list of toxic effects at the bottom of the ad, right? That, that was the end. So I don't think those ads were helpful in terms of increasing sales. What they did though, was allow pharma, pharma, uh, big pharma to get into the media and get their hooks in them and control them with their advertising dollars. That was the effect of, the, of the, that change. And that they do, you know, that's why you never see uh, a negative uh, a program, let's say on the jabs, from these media outlets, because they're all being financed by Pfizer and their buddies. So that's that's what that led to. Now, the issue with doctors, doctors have been brainwashed in medical, starting in medical school to uh, honor the whole <clears throat> pharma model, the whole risk factor model, right? Treating risk factors as opposed to actually reversing disease. They're, they're being taught guidelines. And I saw this when I was teaching medicine down in Grenada. They're being taught guidelines instead of being taught how to think critically and make your own decisions based on each patient's individual needs. That was not being taught. So they are already groomed to prescribe because that's all they've been shown how to do. I mean, I remember I saw lecture uh, notes and exam questions from one of the pharmacology professors who was a friend of mine down there about treatment of type two diabetes. It was just a list of medications and how to use them. And I wrote an email to him. I said, you know uh, that you can reverse type two diabetes with a correct diet. And they never mentioned this, right? It's all about just drug treatment and targeting the glucose level in the blood, the hemoglobin A1C with the long-term effect of glucose in the blood and not reversing the disease and actually curing the patient. This is such an, such an egregious example of bad medical care that is guideline driven, that is being practiced widely around the country and world, pushing ever increasing doses of medications, and insulin, which is very toxic in type two diabetes, uh, to control the blood sugar level and not reverse the disease. And it is so easy, frankly, to reverse type two diabetes by getting patients to follow a correct diet. Do you consider that a uh, issue when it comes to the fact that these doctors get kicked back sometimes from pushing these medications? Like that should never be a thing. They shouldn't, even if it's a small amount of money, but names like Fauci that aren't able to disclose certain amounts of money that they make from certain drugs and other doctors as well. So I think Peter McCullough put up a post about how much certain doctors were making about it. That's a really big ethical concern. And it's like, if you even mention that people just kind of roll their eyes or they don't want to talk about it. I'm like, no, that's 
should be that's the first thing we should be cutting out. I mean, advertising is one thing, but the fact that people are getting incentivized to put people on certain drugs and experimental ones too, not always are the big main ones that they're getting pushed on. They're sometimes getting pushed on one that nobody's ever heard the name of. Yeah, well, they, they're not getting kickbacks in a direct way, but they are being paid by big pharma. And both Peter and I, Peter's an old friend of mine, both Peter and I were in that position. You know, we were what they called key opinion leaders in our respective fields. And we were in very close terms with some of the major pharma companies that would pay us lecture fees, for example, or speaking fees and consulting fees uh, to weigh in on their new products, et cetera. It's a subtle form of bribery. There's no question about it. You know who's done a lot of great stuff on this? My nephrology colleague in Canada, Dr. Jason Fung. He has been a tremendous uh, source of great information, both on diet, fasting, treatment of type 2 diabetes, but also the corruption of medicine. He has named names. He points out who's getting paid off by pharma. It includes some of the big medical journals, uh, the editors of the big medical journals. These guys all decry what has happened to the practice of medicine. There are famous quotes from Marsha Angel, Richard Horton, Marsha Angel, former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, Richard Horton, former editor of The Lancet, about how pharma manipulates data in, the, in their journals. But what did they really do to, to prevent that or to fight back against it? Not much, if anything. So the whole thing goes on. It's quite the scam. Uh, yeah, no, doctors are not getting direct kickbacks, but they are getting paid off in various ways. If you are a big prescriber of a certain drug, they, the company takes care of you. They invite you to uh, become a consultant at, one, at, at a meeting somewhere in some nice hotel, or you, know, you get paid a few thousand dollars for rendering your opinion on the use of this product. And it's a scam. It's going on. It's going on all the time. But I, let, let me tell you, the guideline approach was brilliant because this is marketing by the back door. And it got the benefit of having uh, a good reputation. Doctors embraced guidelines coming from these august bodies. I mean, every special specialty society puts out guidelines on treatment of, the, of their diseases. And they, they achieve a certain level of authority but ultimately they are corrupt and should all be disregarded. Would this pandemic have been, I guess, as confusing as it was if people had either more education on some medical terms? Like I know they changed the word vaccination, but there was like a lot of confusion with, we talk about evidence-based, you know, you toss that out there. A lot of people are going, okay, you know, they'll just nod their head and go with it because they don't know what that is. I didn't really even know what it was. I had to look into it, but then also, people taking care of themselves too when it comes to their diet if anything this kind of should have woken people up to the fact that they might not have been as healthy as they should have been i do believe some of like the things they were saying like people are dying in the street they made that statement on tv made it seem like that a lot i was like i don't think that's true but i think a lot of people obviously got sick and were sick for a while because of the fact that they weren't in the best condition i mean a lot of people haven't been outside they work all day they buy some you know, crappy foods to eat, their bodies weren't in good condition. So that should have woke them up to at least their diet. Well, that's a good point. And it was obvious from the beginning of the pandemic that uh, obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome were the major risk factors for having a bad outcome from COVID. And I saw that firsthand in the hospital, the sick patients that I was taking care of in the ICU at Bellevue, 
most of the younger patients were very obese and had type 2 diabetes. So addressing those would have made a big dent in the mortality due to COVID, especially in the initial waves. But even the subsequent waves, those patients were the most at risk. And nothing was said about it. I did a little course on that at St. George's University, and that that was probably the one of the only people to speak out about how treatment of the metabolic syndrome, which is diet, low carb, high fat diet, reverses the metabolic syndrome in almost everybody, how that would have paid off huge benefits in terms of reducing uh, morbidity and mortality from COVID. And no one really talked about that. Use of vitamin D, exposure to the sun all these uh, so-called natural methods would have been huge along with early treatment with repurposed drugs that they intentionally sabotaged so that they could push the jabs and their preferred drugs such as molnupiravir and Paxlovid, which eventually came out. What were your thoughts on them shaming drugs like ivermectin and other drugs that could have been potential forms of treatment? I mean, they really pushed the vaccine. And I know they said it was for emergency use or something of that sort. But to me, it's like if someone is sick and they're dying and this could be something that could help them and they want that, I feel like you should give it to them. It's about saving a life, right? Not just promoting a vaccine. It's a huge scandal and crime, really. And heads should roll for this, the suppression, the active suppression of positive information about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, both of which we know for a fact work well in early COVID, especially in the outpatient setting. You know, another of my old friends is Pierre Corey, who has been uh, fabulous in his leadership role at Frontline Critical Care Consortium. He and I were old friends. We worked together in New York for a number of years. And when he first came out talking about the benefits of ivermectin, I didn't really have to read a single study to conclude that that was a safe and effective drug for, for COVID. <clears throat> because I knew I know Pierre, and I know that he is a top doctor who doesn't have an, an agenda, right? He, he's just wanting to help patients. And if you give a drug in a sick patient, let's say in the ICU, and the next day they turn around and they're better, you know for a fact that that drug helped them. You don't need a controlled trial. Personal clinical experience of that magnitude is so compelling that you don't really need to do the studies. That doesn't mean that there weren't studies. There were studies, but they were suppressed and they were not used. In other words, the guideline authorities <clears throat> like the WHO and the CDC, uh, all these groups said, no, there's no evidence to support the use of ivermectin. They just denied the evidence because they have the bully pulpit. They have the authority. But when you really look at it, and Pierre has, there's tons of evidence that the drugs work, particularly ivermectin. No, and the hydroxychloroquine, they knew that that would work because it was used in SARS-CoV-1. And that's what its use in SARS-CoV-2 was based on, the early experience with SARS-CoV-1. Didier Raoult in France, a brilliant, brilliant clinician and, and researcher who was, by the way, hounded out of his job down in Marseille, uh, knew that it worked. And he started treating patients with it. Uh, Zev Zelenko up in New York 
followed that lead, and he started using it with great success. Others did as well. Brian Tyson, uh, George Farid out in California, treated thousands of patients, kept them out of the hospital, saved lives. So we know that they, these drugs worked. The suppression of the drugs was entirely pharma-based. Pharma has so much influence over our government and our official policymakers that they were able to suppress this. They have in influence over media, medical journals. They're all over. They really are huge and powerful. Why? Because they knew that if we had effective outpatient early treatment, we would not need emergency use of a novel genetic therapy that was unproven and untested. And that's what they were counting on. And they all made billions of dollars on these products. Could I ask about monoclonal antibodies? Sure. Were they suppressed at all? I mean, were they been effective in at least preventative or treatment measures? They, they were definitely effective. And I, I saw it firsthand in patients who I recommended get it. Their COVID turned around almost overnight. So these were very effective approaches. And they were also suppressed because they didn't, because they were so intent on pushing this jab. And regarding the jab, I don't know if you're going to be able to uh, keep, keep this in, but it was obvious from the beginning, just looking at the initial trials, that they never worked. And that is where I fault my colleagues in the medical profession, who should have been able to read a journal article and see the flaws in it and see how they, they really faked the data in so many ways and said, no, we're not going to be basing public health policy on these products that were so hastily pushed into production and so poorly uh, studied. They just, we, we don't have any evidence that they really work. And plus we knew just on basic science, and this is what I emphasize in my practice and my teaching, basic science trumps so-called evidence-based medicine every time. For example, you give a shot to somebody in their muscle. We, we know, by the way, of course, that it gets out into the entire body. But you're going to be, at best, producing, if it works, you're going to be producing antibodies to a certain part of this virus in the blood. But the virus attacks you through the nose and the upper airway, which has an entirely different immune system based on IgA as opposed to IgG and IgM in the blood. So it was never going to be effective in preventing infection. Never. And they knew this. And they never even claimed in their studies that it prevented infection. The studies only claim that it reduced the severity of symptoms, which is a crappy, easy to manipulate endpoint for a study. And that should have raised alarm bells right away in any physician reading those initial trials. One more alarm should have been raised when, well, there were other issues, but one of the major ones was that they did not follow what we call intention to treat protocol in the study design. What does that mean? It means that once you randomize patients or subjects into either a placebo arm or a treatment arm, that whatever happens to them from that point on is attributed to that randomization. So if there is a death that occurs in the treatment arm that uh, is attributed to that treatment, right? Then you, you, know, you can't get away from that. They didn't 
consider you vaccinated until I think 10 days to two weeks after your second dose. Well, what happens if you died after your first dose? Well, that goes with the unvaccinated, either study design. And many other studies that were done subsequently followed the same idea that they would not use intention to treat, that you would only be considered vaccinated two weeks after your second dose. So all of those deaths and infections that occurred between the first dose and two weeks after the second dose get lumped into the unvaccinated. So that completely distorts the results and it gives you a false safety signal. We know that these shots were unsafe. I mean, Pfizer had within six months of beginning their study, to over 1,200 deaths in the vaccinated group. And this is out of 40,000 total subjects. There were 3,000 uh, uh, subjects combined in the Pfizer and Moderna trials that had suspected but unconfirmed infection. What happened to them? Why didn't they get included into the study? Why didn't they get reported in the results? What happened to these patients? They don't tell you. This is why the source data is so important. And this is why they wanted to hide it for 75 years. But it is now coming out, thanks to you know, Aaron Siri in his lawsuit with ICANN. And uh, look at Naomi Wolf's site to get the reports, because she's got access to all this information. And she's assembled a team of experts to go through it, because it's huge now. Do you remember this talking point during the pandemic, where it's like, well, if you got your shot, you know, it could have been worse if you didn't get your shot. You know, if you got COVID, I don't know if you had COVID. I had COVID. I got it from someone who was double vaxxed and boosted. I beat it in three days. Now I take care of myself. I eat really healthy. I work out all the time. So that was like, I don't even take Tylenol for anything. I was just like, let my body naturally work this through. But someone had mentioned that it would have been worse or no, it would, it, I, it would have been less worse if i would have got a shot i probably would have been over it quicker i was like i'm over it and it's been oh, it was only three days i had one bad day i was like i don't know what crystal ball technology you're using to tell me that it would have been worse or it would have been this or it would have been better if i would have got a shot but they use that and a lot of people still stick with that narrative today yeah as well let me quote the evidence-based medicine crowd there's no evidence to make that statement based on, you based on what none of the studies really showed that and there was never ever never any evidence that it either prevented infection, prevented spread, prevented hospitalization, or prevented death. Any claims to the contrary are not supported. And once they finished those initial trials, after about two or three months, when they had their data, where they claimed this wonderful 95% efficacy, which is a bogus number, then they rolled over the placebo arm into the treatment arm. In other words, they offered, they unblinded the trial and they offered the placebo group the vaccine and almost all took it. So you no longer had a controlled trial at that point. What you had was observational data and that allowed them to uh, obfuscate the negative effects. Because if you don't have a placebo arm, you can no longer ascribe any of the negative effects to the shot. You know, the, the only way you can do that is by comparison with a placebo group that didn't get it, but they took that away. So once those trials were polluted by destroying the placebo group, there has never been since then a randomized controlled trial showing any real hard endpoint benefit for these shots. 
all we have are now negative effects that are very apparent. And you just have to look at the VAERS database and you know the vaccine safety database and other countries' database to show the enormous harms, including many deaths, millions of deaths now from the shots. How, how much blame do you put on just the politics getting entwined with this subject? For some reason, if you were not wearing a mask or if you were doing something that wasn't following protocols, you either got labeled a Trumper, you got labeled a bunch of things, which didn't really make sense. And I'm not really, a, I don't have a political side or anything. I'm just kind of my own thoughts and trying not to hurt anybody. But they made it seem like you were a demon if you weren't following these protocols. And it's the only conversation, much like with politics, where it ends up getting into points of argument and contention where nobody can agree and there's just two people fighting back and forth. And that has become the vaccine topic. Yeah, it's a shame it has become politicized, but everything does. And medicine is now has become politicized. And doctors are part of the problem because they don't see this. You know, they see themselves as helping patients, I hope. Uh, but many of them are just following the, uh, the narrative and, and they're playing along with the political agendas. And the agendas are to jab as many people as, as possible. And this completely goes against Hippocratic ethical medical practice. There cannot be a one-size-fits-all plan for anything. Everything has to be individualized. And that was one of the giveaways when you saw that they were not taking into account any clinical considerations. They just wanted the needle in every arm. Whether you were pregnant, a toddler, a young person who had zero risk, from serious outcomes from COVID, they were have, they had to line up and get the jab too. Whether you had autoimmune disease, whether you had other, other contraindications that were clear, whether you were breastfeeding, none of that mattered. It was all, it was one size fits all, everybody get in line. It was medical tyranny at its worst. The complete denial of bodily autonomy the, the the violation of basic human rights was so huge. Ethical doctors should have just stood up and said no. Sadly, there were very few who did. Do you think this ruins the public's perception of the healthcare industry? I mean, a lot of people, I think, change their tune on what they would call fact and also what they would call doctor or anything of that sort, which I didn't want to happen. I mean, I, like I said, in the beginning, I was very dissentive on the official narrative of the taking the shot and get over it. I mean, I think we were all scared in the very beginning, but lockdowns was a major problem for me. And I kind of look at it now like I don't think we should be blaming our doctors or certain people because there are people that like yourself that were trying to speak out and we're trying to do good. But there was just a couple at the top that really were controlling everything. And it goes to a point you mentioned earlier about personal care. I mean, would you have just more doctors owning their own practices? and doing things of that sort to really build the reputation up and build that client and kind of doctor relationship that is needed. I mean, you can't get it through 20 minutes on a Zoom call like they like to do now. And then it's booked out eight months. I'm like, how do you even get to know what's going on in your patient's life to be able to treat them properly? Yeah, I think the only way we get respect back to the medical profession is if more doctors opt out of this whole corporate third-party system and establish a pure private practice where you get paid by your patients and that's it. Direct payment is ethical, anything else is not. If someone else is paying you to take care of a patient, that's the veterinary model. 
where the payer makes the call on what, what treatment you get. Ultimately, it interferes with the patient-physician relationship. The only way to have a pure patient-physician relationship, to restore that, is to have direct payment of the doctor by the patient. And that is not going to bankrupt patients. It's a very modest fee in the, in the scheme of things to pay for a doctor's care. Much better that than to get a, you know, someone who's just going to write a bunch of prescriptions for you and call it care when in fact they're harming you. If you want a real doctor, you need to pay, for that, pay that doctor directly, like you would pay a lawyer directly. You pay a lawyer directly and they are going to go to bat for you, right? They're going to put your well-being and your financial well-being uh, at the top of their agenda and they're going to fight like tooth and nail to protect you. Well, doctors should have that same commitment to each of their individual patients. And the only way we really get back to that is with a direct pay model. Could I ask, you mentioned this earlier about, but about suppression of evidence of other treatments. On some of these sites that you mentioned, like the JAMA network and all those, I had to get my information or just studies from other countries that were actually looking into some of these things. In the US, there was none being published. And some of these research sites are strictly like either United States or something of that sort, which makes it difficult if someone goes to Google about a drug and they're coming up with studies that say inconclusive evidence or not effective on treatment of COVID. But then if you go to a whole other location, the UK or something like that, you have a lot more studies that are showing, no, it has some promise to it or it has some answers to it. And that completely distorts the public's perception of what's right and wrong. Yeah, uh, you can't rely on Google, that's for sure. You Google any drug uh, and you will get a whole host of pharmaceutical websites or pharma pharmaceutical controlled websites such as WebMD you know, which is, uh, or MedPage. They're all pharma outlets. So you can't trust any of that stuff. And it's very hard. It's very hard to find accurate, good scientific data on drugs. Uh, you have to dig, and it's not easy. But you can, again, the cautionary precautionary principle, the cautionary principle should guide most of medical care. And if there is no lengthy experience with a certain product, you just shouldn't use it. And you cannot accept FDA approval as a seal of goodness. It is far from that. The FDA is one of the most corrupt agencies in the government, and that's saying a lot. They are completely controlled and captured by pharma and have been for years. So it's nothing new. The fact that they would approve, even for emergency use, any of these products is, a, is, is evidence that they are corrupt because the evidence base for these products is so weak. Uh, so doctors must be the ultimate guardians of their patients and reject simple FDA approval or a CDC recommendation and make their own decisions. And the only way you do this is by being independent financially. Has it been difficult for you dealing with censorship? Like you can't really talk about any of the COVID topic on YouTube. They did change their guidelines. I had uh, two vaccine lawyers on, one who represented clients and one who was like, no, get your shot. There's no side effects. And um, they, they don't let any of the vaccine topic at all and they i mean they recently changed some of the things like if you have a side effect you can talk about it if it's you but you can't talk about other people getting one but they do not let ivermectin go out there at all right the censorship was an early tell about the real agenda 
because it's unprecedented that we've had so much censorship of doctors just explaining their results with various products. It's unprecedented and unjustified. And I came up with a new definition of the truth. The truth is anything that is being censored by Google or by the official media. Because if it was not true, they wouldn't care. And it wouldn't uh, potentially gain any traction. The fact that it's being censored means that there is something to it and that they're scared. They're scared that's going to upset the apple cart. So they're clamping down on it. And the Trusted News Initiative was a formal censorship organization of the major news outlets that was brought into effect very early on during the pandemic to control the flow of information. And in all of the models, the pandemic models, such as Event 201, that was a huge topic. How do they control the information? How do they uh, get you know, the, the, their version of the truth out? And control of the media and social media was a huge component of that. And we have seen now with the Twitter files how pervasive it was. I mean, the FBI and the Biden administration uh, literally controlled what was what was going out on Twitter to the uh, with incredible uh, granularity. I mean, they were down to you know get rid of this one particular tweet. Look, this is very serious stuff. It's pure totalitarianism. They use this notion of misinformation and disinformation, which ultimately, when you think about it, is based on the whole evidence-based medicine acceptance. If you grant that these authorities can define what is true and what is valid, then you are giving into that. Then you're allowing them to control, have a monopoly on the truth. And of course, in science, no one has a monopoly on the truth. It's always up for debate, always up for grabs. But that's where we are now. We're fighting this concept that is, uh, you know, predates Galileo, that some central body can define what is true. And that must be rejected at the highest level. And I'm hoping that this, this case, I think it was from Missouri, uh, that challenged the uh, censorship gets to the Supreme Court. And I hope that they resoundingly decide that that cannot stand that there cannot be a ministry of truth. That's really what it is, what it comes down to. And if they don't decide that way, we're in serious trouble. Well, they can even put disclaimers on things, which is fine with me, but allow the content to be up there. I think Dr. Drew, I watched him do a complete 180 from the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, and he lost his channel and everything just from interviewing doctors that had a separate opinion on things. But I got to ask, from what's your perspective on Dr. Fauci? You know, some people have bobbleheads of that man, and I'm not a big fan of that guy. He is one of the most corrupt bureaucrats that we have. I mean, he has been in this position now out, but still exerting, I'm sure, influence behind the scenes for 40 plus years. Uh, he established himself quite the empire. I mean, I do believe the RFK Jr.'s book on Fauci is as good as it gets in terms of just showing who this guy is and what he's done. And it goes, his career got launched during the AIDS epidemic, which I saw as a young doctor. And I, I had a very favorable opinion of Fauci going into the whole pandemic, but how he behaved and how he flip-flopped and became tyrannical uh, 
left me with a very sour taste and I quickly turned on him. I think Trump made a huge mistake in going along with him and elevating him in, in importance, him and Burks. You know, Burks ultimately said they hoped the vaccines would work. They didn't know, right? They knew they didn't. They, fundamentally, they knew they didn't. And everybody involved in their development knew they didn't work, including the top execs of Pfizer. They all knew. So pushing this stuff was, to say the least, unethical, if not criminal. And it, it betrays a deeper agenda, which is, I think, very malignant, you know, that they're, they're wanting to hurt people. Literally, they want to hurt people. And I think this does tie into the, the population eugenics movement in a very profound and, and sadly very uh, real way. Fauci has been an agent of the World Economic Forum. He's been an agent of all the people who are behind this. Big Pharma, he's been in the pocket of Big Pharma since the very beginning of his career. Uh, RFK Jr. documents that. And uh, sadly, he's also been in the pocket of the CCP based on his funding of the COVID gain of function research via the Wuhan lab. So he's, he's a malignant force and I think he needs to be held accountable at some point. I don't hold my breath for this to occur, but I do hope that it does. That's the crazy thing to me is I got called a conspiracy theorist by multiple people when I was saying it came from that lab or it had, or just look into it. And they were like, no, you're racist, you're a conspiracy theorist. I was like, but that's what they do at the lab is testing viruses to, you know, like I, to me, I just didn't think it was a large connection, but everyone was okay with saying it came from something that they ate from that wet market or something like that, which seemed more racist to me, but now everyone threw that out the window. But yeah, that was a crazy one as well, too. I mean, do you, are you hopeful for? Like, because there's talks about lockdowns happening again. They're talking about another variance. And I kind of saw it die down a little bit. I don't check too much of the news because I just don't like it at all. Um, on either side, it's all kind of garbage to me. But they mentioned about like a month ago, I started hearing talks in my town about lockdowns again. And other places might go because of this new variant that's out there. And it makes me wonder if a lot of people are going to fall back in that. Like, what would get people to the point of getting back in there? I mean, they incentivized a lot of people to stay home with a lot of money during unemployment. And for a lot of people, that was more than they were making weekly at their job. And a lot of people like staying at home. But I would feel like, you know, at this point, we saw that it did not do anything good. And it was actually more harmful to everybody that they would even talk about it again. Yeah, everything that they recommended from a public health standpoint was harmful. It not only did not work, they were all harmful. Masking, the isolation, the lockdowns, uh, the jabs, they're, they're all very, very harmful. And it will happen again. I'm convinced that they're planning a new pandemic as we speak. And they're going to, because it was so successful, right? It, they, they, they did so well. They, they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams in getting people to go along and comply with these absurd mandates. So why wouldn't they try it again? I'm sure they will, but it's up to us to resist and push back and say no. I, one of the uh, notes that I think is encouraging has been the Elon Musk takeover of Twitter. It is certainly a much more open platform than it was before he took it over. So th there's hope there that we can at least get the word out to a large audience. Well, Dr. Ammerling, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links and anything else you'd like to promote your Twitter or anything like that? I think the best uh, spot would be the 
Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. I've long been associated with that organization uh, as a board member. I am currently a board member as president uh, some years ago, and they are a very unique organization of doctors that has been fighting for independent medical practice for many, many years. They have a hugely uh, important role to play, and a lot of what I've written is on their site at aapsonline.org. So I recommend that everybody go there. And actually, you can join the organization and support us. And the other place would be Twitter, where you can find me at Dr. Amerling. I'm not really very active on any of the other social sites. Can I ask how you got involved in that association? Well, during the my early days, I knew that the trend towards socialized medicine was strong. Uh, I was involved in the fight against Hillary Care, going back to the 90s, and then ultimately Obamacare. And I started getting their material and going to their meetings and joining back in the, I guess, 90s. Uh, so I've, you know, what, what can I say? They, they have been around since the 40s. They fought this fight since the 40s. They are marginalized by the mainstream media, which is, of course, a good sign. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to be embraced by the mainstream media. But we do get the word out. We have a legal arm. The legal arm helped to defeat Hillary Care by forcing the, one of their uh, private meetings out into the open, where it, it was revealed that Hillary Care was being written behind the scenes by a bunch of managed care executives. So we helped to derail Hillary, Hillary Care. Uh, we pushed hard against Obamacare, but ultimately they won out on that because they they essentially cheated to gain control of the Senate. So look, um, it's an uphill battle, but we are pushing for independent doctors and we, we support independent doctors. And in fact, our, our annual meeting is coming up October 26th, I believe, in Fort Dallas, Fort Worth. People should come and check it out online and get, get a lot of useful information. Well, Dr. Amerling, I'm going to link all your links in the description. I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.